You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, Pippa. Hi, Karina. So this episode's word is expatriate, more commonly shortened to expat. And the reason we wanted to do this episode is because this word is simple on the surface, but when you put it into context, there's a lot of baggage behind it. Right. So let's start with the simplest definition. Expatriate comes from the Latin terms ex, which means out of, and patria, which means native country or fatherland. So an expat is someone who lives in a country other than their home country. And it's a term that's most commonly applied to people who live in another country because of work. Although, uh, side note, historically, the word expatriate could also mean something closer to, like, exile or refugee. Like, you you didn't leave your home country by choice. You were banished from it or, or couldn't return for some reason. But these days, the common usage meaning is a move by choice. I think when I picture a stereotypical expat... The first thing I imagine in my head is like a British national who's working and living in like Spain or Thailand, Mm -hmm. somewhere with a currency that is many times cheaper than a British pound. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so why am I picturing a British person? (laughs) I actually have an answer to this. Um, The UK actually has the most expats living abroad out of any developed OECD country. According to the BBC, it's estimated that 5.5 million British people live permanently abroad, which is almost one in 10 of the UK population. Okay, it makes more sense that like Pierce Brosnan is coming to mind now. (laughs) I picture someone who has a job that we would refer to as skilled, like they're Mm. a white collar professional or like telecommuting, like a tech worker or something. Mm -hmm. Skilled is such a loaded word there. Mm. I also feel like the stereotype is someone who doesn't necessarily speak the language or participate fully in the culture of their new homeland. Mm -hmm. So, like, this is sort of the stereotypical portrait of an expat. Um, And it sounds pretty straightforward on the surface, but the word gets a lot more interesting when you put it next to other words, such as migrant. Or immigrant. Yeah. And those words obviously conjure a very different type of person. Yeah, because uh, racism. (laughs) Shocker. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) So uh, to help me dig into this word and all of this delightful baggage there, I spoke to Dr. Anu Taranat, who is faculty at the University of Washington in Seattle and also a racial equity consultant and facilitator. And uh, if I can do a quick self-serving plug, she's also the author of the very fantastic book, Beyond Guilt Trips, Mindful Travel in an Unequal World, which is published by Between the Lines, which is the small press that I work at. (laughs) Karina, that was seamless (laughs) self-promotion. Wow. Thanks. Uh, I do my best. Um, So Beyond Guilt Trips is a book that explores the implications of traveling from the perspective of race and wealth and and culture. So, like, how do we move through a different country while being mindful of privilege? This sounds like required reading for, like, gap year kids. (laughs) Do you remember that gap year video? Gap year. Gap I chunded everywhere. (laughs) That that one? (laughs) Yeah, 100%. It's a good book for for that. Uh, Here's Anu. So uh, an expat is someone who is often seen as a rich professional from the West who is working abroad outside of their home country. And 
It's a term that is nuanced by class and race and wealth and privilege, and it's often only applied to certain kinds of people who cross borders for work, right? The Sri Lankan uh, nanny or construction worker who is working in Qatar in the Gulf states, right? They are not seen as expats. They are deemed foreign workers or migrant workers. And the classification matters immensely because the language we use is imbued with power. And power in language can delegitimate one's humanity. It can debase one's humanity. Language is really critical, right? Because it can both uplift as well as dehumanize. And in uplifting some kinds of people into expats, we are denigrating other people into the categories of foreign worker or migrant. So why don't we look at these definitions side by side? Um, these are all from the Oxford English Dictionary. Expat is a person who lives outside their native country. An immigrant is a person who comes to live permanently in a foreign country. Migrant is a person who moves from one place to another in order to find work or better living conditions. Those are all, like, for all intents and purposes, the same. <laughs> yeah, they're all very similar. They all have a lot in common. They all involve living in a different country. And migrant and expat both involve moving for work, albeit, I mean, the, the implication is very different kinds of work, right? Like, you're treated very differently as an employee and your legal status in that country can be very tenuous or not. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking like a, a hired farm laborer versus a marketing manager <laughs> or like an executive position, that kind of thing. Yeah. Migrant and expat also both involve the element of choice, right? Although you could say that in some cases, migrants' choice to move for work is not a choice at all, but brought about more by necessity, whereas the expat moves in a more fluid way. Mm -hmm. And I'd say migrant has kind of a muddier definition. People use it in some different ways. Mm -hmm. And to bring up another related word, refugee, would be signaling the total absence of choice, right? You're forced to leave. It's a matter of life or death, persecution, violence, etc. Yeah, I think with that word, it's definitely signaling the person is fleeing war or famine or intolerable living conditions or grave danger. And it, it comes with its own set of legal status implications, so it is a lot less comparable to the words migrant and expat. There are some scholars who say that we shouldn't be imbuing the word expat with all of these connotations of wealth or a certain nationality. But as Anu and I discussed, that's not how it plays out in the real world. So then the Sri Lankan maid who is traveling abroad to work would be also considered the expat, as well as the white male official from the multinational working in Nigeria. And yet, though technically that might be true, right, they're both crossing borders to work, our assumptions carry a lot of weight. It's hard to excise those assumptions and just look at the technicality of the term. We live in an exceptionally racialized world, a world that is defined by the longer arm of colonialism, imperialism, slavery, wealth extraction from the global south to enrich the global north. This is the context in which our words make sense, in which our mental maps have some life to it. 
And so from that angle, I agree with the scholars that say, though many different kinds of workers might be considered expat from the definition side, from the assumption side, they're really different concepts. And I think it behooves us to think about those assumptions really critically, right? So she mentions the global north there. Um, Should we talk about that concept? Yeah, uh, I think that's a good idea. So you'll hear her contrast the global north and the global south. It's not where a country literally falls on either side of the equator. It's more of a socioeconomic and, to some extent, political dividing line. Um, The global north being a shorthand for North America, Western European countries, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, um, a few others. And the global south is referring to Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean, and um, some countries in the Middle East and Asia. Those terms feel way more specific than, say, uh, calling a country third world, which I feel like we don't do anymore. No, yeah, we we don't. There's actually an interesting backstory to that whole, like, uh, first, second, third world classification system. Oh, yeah? Um, so I, this is mostly from this very good article on NPR, which I'll link to in the show notes, but the third world classification was something that started because of the Cold War. And a French demographer published an article in 1952 that referenced the concept of three worlds, one planet. Um, and they were describing the group of countries that didn't belong to either side of the Cold War, like neither the Western side nor the Soviet side. Interesting. So the first world meant the Western bloc of the Cold War. Right. So the the U.S., Western Europe, and their allies. And second world is the communist bloc. So the Soviet Union, China, Cuba, anybody closely allied with them, which obviously leaves out a bunch of countries. And that is the so-called third world. And the majority, I know, and the majority of those countries were colonies or used to be colonies, which meant they had a higher chance of being impoverished and like more politically unstable. So after the Cold War, Third World um, just sort of stuck around and became this shorthand to mean that a country is impoverished. But obviously, it's a pretty ham-handed classification system since there are many countries that were both not on one side of the Cold War and not impoverished. Yeah. And also the whole numbering system is pretty inherently (laughs) insulting, too, obviously. Like, First World connotes, like, best, most advanced richest. Yeah. Just think about how the U.S. is classified as a first world country under that classification system, but trails behind so many other countries in terms of education and health care. Yeah, exactly. What about the term developing country? Yeah, I think that's like generally agreed to be an acceptable term. And like its usage is is encouraged in a few style guides, like the Associated Press style guide, for instance. It's better, for one, because it's not like sorting countries based on communism versus (laughs) capitalism. (laughs) It's talking about economic development, right? Yeah, but it still has that hierarchical element. Like you're developed or you're developing. And developed has so much more finality to it. Like as if Canada is a developed country, it's just finished. There's like no more work to be done. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, we can pack it in, go home. We Mm -hmm. we finished the country. (laughs) Yeah, I think you can make that critique for sure. Um, And again, like we said in the U.S. example, different aspects of countries, quote unquote, develop at different paces, right? So 
Global South and Global North are used pretty commonly now, but there are still people who don't like those terms either because there are so many geographic exceptions, like Australia definitely being a southern country, but it's part of the Global North. Oh, so right. it, can, it can be seen as like confusing in that way. Yeah, it doesn't sound like we've got a term that's really working perfectly. No, not really. And it is hard to come up with something that feels like fair but not pejorative. Like, really, what we are doing here is lumping countries into, like, better or worse. Yeah, uh, yeah, at the core of it, yes. <laughs> and that's the whole debate about expat versus immigrant or migrant. Like, being an expat is better, and being an immigrant or a migrant is worse, even though they are, like we saw, synonyms. Yeah, so there's obviously a flow of people between the global north and global south in both directions all the time. Mm. But I wanted to talk about what the draw is for uh, so-called expats. And I feel like wealth is a big one, right? Like your dollar goes so much farther in Southeast Asia than it does in Vancouver or Toronto or New York City. Like the cost of living is a huge draw. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. I think that comes out in the sort of um, digital nomad phenomenon, mm -hmm. you know, where remote work makes it possible for people from the global north to just like schlep around wherever and spend pennies on the dollar that they would be um, if they were living in the U.S., for instance. Um, there's another angle, though, beyond the cost of living that is more of an intangible, which Anu and I talked about. This is also part of the longer history of white supremacy that we navigate. White Westerners who settle abroad, especially in black and brown lands, they're able to cash in on whiteness and the global preference for light-skinned, fair-skinnedness that we see in so many different contexts in sometimes conscious and in many unconscious ways. It feels really special to feel special. It feels like you're being singled out in a wonderful way when you're being singled out. And I've heard from a range of expats during my own travels where they feel like they're able to participate in the exotic culture of their adopted home, but they're also singled out for their specialness because they're white. Hmm. So there's like this feeling of specialness. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is also a thing about travel in general. Like it's framed as this sort of sophistication or worldliness. Like travelers have a superior understanding of the world. It always blew my mind how many people on Tinder would list travel as one of their hobbies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, travel memes are also very cringy. Yeah, like a the picture of someone in a bikini on a beach and then like, not all who wander are lost. Yeah, oh my god, so sad how good of a line that is and how much it's been ruined. Poor Tolkien. I totally forgot that was Tolkien. <laughs> it's just been so separated for me. It really, it really has. I feel like the kind of person who posts the Tolkien travel meme is the same person who likes to call themselves a global citizen, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> Anu and I talked about the concept of being a global citizen, actually, since I think it's um, one of those phrases that, like expat, usually only gets to be applied to a very specific type of person, like, mm -hmm. say, a privileged college student from Canada or the U.S. who's doing study abroad. Global citizenship, I think, has a lot of beautiful sentiment underneath it, for sure. It's about the sense that we're all connected. It's about the sense that we all have something to learn and gain from knowing one another better. 
and I celebrate those um, aspects of the term. The parts of the term that I want to push up against are the parts that don't necessarily talk about the broader dynamics of global power. It's one thing to be curious and interested in other parts of the globe. It's another thing to have the opportunity to actually put some of that curiosity into practice. And global citizenship, often at its most raw, has a sense of entitlement to it. Yeah, this is just bringing up so many memories. Um, So I grew up in West Vancouver, which is often ranked as one of the richest cities in all of Canada. Mm-hmm. And my high school and I went on one of those like really cringy volunteerism trips to Nicaragua in when I was in grade 11 to um, quote unquote build a community center. But like <laughs> we had no word working skills. Like what, what were we contributing? I find it very cringy now to look back on that time and picture like 30 kids, mostly rich, mostly white with like next to no Spanish. Right. Thinking that we were like contributing and like <laughs> doing something great for this community. Oh boy. Did, did you feel like you were at the time? Did you feel like, yeah, this is. Oh, this to is be good. honest, I think we had some skepticism about it then, but uh-huh. not nearly the way that we do now looking back on it in hindsight. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's not all just white people moving from the global north to south, obviously. Uh-huh. Um, anu and I talked about the opposite, too. Uh, expats who are not white, but who still benefit from their class privilege to live as an expat. People of color, expats that I've met, I think have a more complicated sense of home and adopted homeland. Uh, African Americans who have settled in Ghana, for example, do so for a range of reasons, but many of the folks that I've spoken with have explicitly said, I wanted to leave the racism of the United States and be in a place where everybody looked like me. And so that kind of visual marker of skin color, right, becomes secondary for many African-Americans who settle in Africa as an expat. And yet their class privilege still matters immensely, right? Their passport matters. Yeah, that's a really good point. I feel like we can get very tunnel visiony and only think about expats as being white people who are moving from place to place. Mm-hmm. It's easy to forget that there are lots of different people to, like doing all of these things and like the intersections of their privilege are different. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've talked about expats moving from the global north to the south. So let's talk about the opposite, moving from the global south to north, which it kind of goes without saying is a very different experience. Here's Anu. You have such highly skilled immigrants from different parts of the world whose qualifications don't count when they come into the U.S. or Canada. And what does that mean for an immigrant and an immigrant family, right, to start from scratch in a new place? I think also the class privilege and wealth and the sense of entitlement that immigrants come with or come without also shapes their journey immensely. The Indian worker who comes to work at Microsoft, for example, has a high-income job that is culturally sanctioned and celebrated. The Sri Lankan nanny uh, is not so celebrated, right, in the same sorts of way as tech workers might be. Um, The cab driver 
is not as celebrated, again, in the way that a tech worker might be. And so I think our own assumptions about whose skills matter and why, and what it means to be able to travel and create a life elsewhere are also in play here. Yeah, just like to take the immigrant experience in Canada, it's not smooth here. Like there are too many economic and social barriers to even talk about in this one episode. But I think of how xenophobia and and ramping down on immigration becomes this conservative talking point every single election. Yeah. Or what's been in the news a lot lately that springs to mind is the migrant workers in Canada. And they've been brutally impacted by the pandemic. Like there have been massive mistreatment issues that have come to light, improper COVID safety procedures. There have been outbreaks. There have been deaths. It's been abysmal. Yeah. And there truly is no one immigrant experience because the levels of privilege between different immigrants and migrants vary so wildly, like Anu said. Mm. She and I um, both have parents who are immigrants from the global south. Her parents are from India, mine are from Venezuela. Um, She grew up in the U.S. I grew up in Canada. So uh, we had a lot in common along those lines. And I asked her a question here that I was genuinely curious about, which was, would her parents ever self-identify as expats? Here's what she said. Oh, good question. Let me think about that for a sec. In terms of my own family story, we have always imagined ourselves as immigrants. That has been the term that has felt most resonant. Um, My father came here for a job, but never imagined himself as an expat. That term wasn't even available, I think, in his imagination at the time. Karina, do you think your parents would say the same thing? Yeah, I think they definitely would. I I don't think they would ever even think of that word in connection to themselves, like Anu said. Mm. But if you are someone who does consider themselves an expat, in like the typical sense, someone who moved from the global north to the global south of their own volition, how do you do that respectfully? Like, is it possible? Yeah, I asked Anu that, and here's what she had to say. I think the question that I get asked most often is some version of this question. How do we listen better to one another? And listening, of course, what I really hear from that is how do we humanize one another more, right? We humanize one another more by understanding that we are all doing the best that we can, that our lives are somehow connected to each other, that we're not islands, but we are part of a larger concept of sharedness. And I think we haven't had much practice doing that as a society. We're so focused on ourselves and, you know, our internal noise and our own desires for the next, what, iPhone, the next this, the next post that we're going to write that, you know, we're worried how many people are going to like it or whatever. We're really uh, caught up in those moments and deep listening is so often not just about the person who's sharing, but it's also about quieting your own self to be able to receive. This is basically what her whole book is about, like how to listen, how to be mindful, how to be in the moment in a quiet way rather than a really obnoxious, um, like American tourist kind of way. Anu uh, talked about how weird it is to be the author of a book about travel in a time when we're all more or less grounded because of COVID. 
I feel like you can't talk about expats and migrants and immigrants moving between countries without talking about just how much COVID has changed that. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me think about the immediate kind of movement that happened when the pandemic really got going here in March. Like people flew home or flew away. Um, I have a family member uh, who normally lives in Brooklyn who flew to Columbia to be with her parents and to get out of New York. Um I have a few friends who basically escaped to, like, cottage country. Oh, absolutely. When Ontario's numbers were spiking in the beginning of the pandemic, I had so many friends who headed home to BC or to the prairies just, like, got out of the big cities. Right, yeah. And those were all things that we can do because of our privilege, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just just like the word expat, that kind of movement is bound up in wealth and in race and in class. Um, some people can leave COVID hotspots and some people can't. I also wonder if post-COVID, we're going to see more people choosing an expat life. Like, so many mm-hmm. industries have embraced the remote working model this year. And in a lot of cases for good, like so many tech companies have said, like, we're not going back to the office So I wouldn't be surprised if we see booming communities of expat workers moving to like Thailand or Costa Rica in the coming years. Yeah, maybe. It's it's just like one more way that COVID has really like intensified and also made very clear these gaps in privilege and wealth between people. Yeah, we've seen the divides between people deepening in so many different ways. Yeah, exactly. I mean, let's be real, right? It's been devastating for people Um, without a lot of safety nets, who are in vulnerable populations. Um, So that's an important reality to foreground. But for some of us who have been more insulated from that devastation because of our class privilege, because of the kind of jobs that we have, the pause that this moment is offering has given rise to some, I think, really thoughtful contemplation, some thoughtful readjusting of society, of our norms, of our understanding of what a good life means, of our understanding of how we want our businesses to run. What does it mean to be in community with one another, right? I mean, this is so much of what we see as part of Black Lives Matter and all of the various agitations, protests, and cries for more justice. Business as usual only serves few. It doesn't serve more of us. And how do we actually root out the injustices that are built into our systems, whether we're talking about police or whether we're talking about the travel industry? And how do we actually democratize our work and our societies in more just, equitable ways? This is really the transformative power of a pause, right? And I think we can pause it here. I think so. Word Bomb is produced by me, Pippa Johnstone. And me, Karina Palmatesta. Thank you to Anu for her interview. So Karina and I aren't immigrants or migrants or refugees. Yeah, and we're definitely not expats. <laughs> no, but we are both settlers in Canada, which is really important to acknowledge in an episode about moving from place to place and the privileges and the struggles that come with that. It's easy, I think, to fall into the trap of dividing the population up into people who were born here and people who moved here for whatever reason. But that overlooks the entire element of who was here before the question of borders and immigration even existed. With that said, our show is recorded in Toronto. 
on the traditional territories of many nations, including the Wendat, the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Métis, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. You can follow the show at Wordbomb Podcast on Instagram and at tvo.org slash wordbomb. Thank you to everyone at TVO who makes this show possible. And thank you for listening. 